Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Professor Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Well, as normal, gentlemen, welcome. Good to be back with you both. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Well, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We've used Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. On our last episode, we answered the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? If you missed the broadcast, I encourage you to give it a listen. This week, we're answering the question, is the Bible the Word of God? The Bible may be the most loved and hated book in history. Some value its eloquence, historical stories, and moral teachings. Others disdain it. As an example, British writer Christopher Hitchens said concerning the Bible, quote, The Bible may, indeed does, contain a warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for bride price, and for indiscriminate massacre. But we are not bound by any of it because it was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. End quote. Let that sink in for a minute. But for the Christian, the Bible is much more than a book of poetry, history, and moral lessons. It's God's word spoken to the world, conveying his rescue mission, a plan to redeem and renovate, a call to turn to him. In other words, the Bible is a God-breathed book pointing to the beautiful one, Jesus Christ. With this in mind, let's jump into today's topic. Joe, let's let's start with you, and let's start with the basics. What exactly is the Bible, and could you just give us a general overview of its contents for those who may just be tuning in and have no idea of what the Bible's about? Sure, Brian. The Bible is a book that God has revealed to us to reveal his redemptive plan for humanity. In other words, the word Bible, biblos, it comes from the Greek, and it refers to the book or the role. And so when we refer to the Bible, Christians use it to refer to 66 books that are part of this entire revelation of Scripture. Those 66 books are divided into two testaments. You have 39 books of the Old Testament, and then you have 27 books of the New Testament. The Old Testament was written before the time of Christ. The New Testament was written after the time of Christ. And these books, these narratives, these prophetic works, they all take up a distinct genre of their own. For example, there's four sections in the Old Testament. You have the law, history, poetry, and then you have the prophets. But then you also have four sections in the New Testament, which are the Gospels, then you have Acts, the Epistles, and then the book of Revelation. So the book as a whole is God's voice to mankind. Its theme is God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ to how to rescue, how he was going to save the world 
through a predicament called sin that Adam and Eve fell into. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you can read about the Protoevangelium. In other words, that word means the first mention of the gospel. And that was spoken to the serpent after Adam and Eve fell, and it said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That's like the title of the Bible, and the rest of the Bible from that point on goes to show how that prophecy will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. He will destroy the wicked one. He will uh, take captivity captive. He will conquer death, and he will make provision for sin. And the devil, though, will get his pound of flesh of Jesus on the cross. Notice the serpent will... um, bite his heel, so to speak. So the Bible, a wonderful thing. I think Christopher Hitchens has some strong words, but I think he forgets that the Bible records things that it doesn't always approve of, such as bigamy and and sodomy and uh, sin and Satan's lies. See, the Bible is a true record of what actually happened. But just because it's a record doesn't mean it approves 100% of what it records. So good. And that was a great overview. Thanks for that, Joe. Well, Luke, let's move to you. I know Joe touched on some of these, but what would you say the Bible is about? It's overriding point or points. Um, some of the the emphasis that readers, maybe the seasoned reader who has been a Bible student for many years, or maybe someone just approaching the Bible for the first time, what what would you tell them that the Bible is about? Great question. And the, the scriptures, as as Joe has actually mentioned, they're about the redemption of mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. And the verse he referenced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, called the Proto-Evangelion, where the first mention of the gospel is a promise of a redeemer who is to come. And so we find much of this in the Old Testament. We would call the Old Testament the shadow and the New Testament the substance from a metaphorical point of view to where all that was promised in the Old Testament has been or will be revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. And that is specific to the pictures of redemption, the promises of redemption in the Old Testament, and then ultimately the fulfillment of that redemption in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and then his second coming, which is, of course, yet to come. So when it comes to what it's about, some people say, well, it's about Jesus, but it details in what way is it about Jesus? Well, it's about his foreshadowing and then his revelation. And as Joe broke down those books, those eight sections of scripture, each one of those interact with those promises in a certain way. We focus a lot on the New Testament because it's the we're the heir apparent of the new covenant at this point within the parenthetical church age that's saying we're interacting with these truths from a different perspective than those who are in the Old Testament, but we're still looking to the same person, which is the Redeemer. And each section of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, focuses on you know the story of Christ's life while he's here on earth in his ministry, his, his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So it's his life spread throughout in a harmonious uh, composite 
of those four books. And then Acts is, of course, the story of the church, how the people took what had been delivered to the apostles, inculcated that, were then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and went forward out and changed the world. The epistles are, of course, the further outworking of that as it goes out into the Gentile world, largely, and the world itself becomes aware of the gospel. And then the final culmination speaks specifically this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the finality of all that's been said up to this point, back to specific references of the major prophets, it ties the Old Testament, New Testament together in the final coming in the kingdom, and then the eternity that's promised to us in the new covenant. So good. Thank you for that, Luke. Joe, I'm going to go back to the quote I gave by Christopher Hitchens. He said, the Bible was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. So my question to you, Joe, is, is the Bible the word of God? Are these God's thoughts? Are these God, you know, superintending human lives to write this book? Or is it, as Hitchens says, just a compilation by uncultured human mammals? Well, certainly there's a big difference between the nature of God and the natures of man. Uh, certainly in comparison to God, uh, we can be considered crude and lowly. And there's probably more words that uh, uh, Christopher could use to describe the lowly nature of human beings. But the Bible is the word of God because Jesus said it was the word of God. In fact, in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them by your truth, thy word your word is truth as he spokes he speaks of the father and so you have this uh testimony from christ about what he believed the bible to be and he goes through all these different statements to describe the characteristics of the bible but when answering the question is the bible the word of god the answer is resounding yes, not only because Jesus said so, he gave us proof that it is by rising from the dead. So when Christ rose from the dead, he has instant credibility, and if he says something is scripture or the word of God, then we believe him to be telling us the truth. He confirmed the Old Testament, and he promised the New Testament. And what scripture says God says, and what God says, Scripture says. And this takes us back to the very basics and the fundamental nature of the Bible as being God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that it was theapneustos. It's God-spirated out the content uh, to the human authors. So at best, the human authors are instruments, much like a hammer is an instrument to a carpenter. The hammer is used to bring about a beautiful chair in the end. So also God uses the instrument of human agency to write out the scriptures. And it's not the hammer that gets the glory for writing the scriptures. It's God that gets the glory. It's the carpenter that gets the glory for his beautiful creation, not the hammer and not the instrument. And so sometimes we confuse what's actually inspired. Well, it's the text 
uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's the graphe, the actual content, and the words are inspired. But Peter in his epistle says that there were holy men of God. Notice that's a different description than Christopher Hitchens puts on people. Uh, the Bible says that these writers were holy men of God, set apart for God's use, and the Holy Spirit moved upon them to pen the scriptures. And this doesn't mean they became robots. This just means that they yielded to the Lord and to the scripture to write what came to mind with their own personalities, their literary styles, and it wasn't divorced from who the writer was. But there is a big distinction between the scripture itself as being inspired and the instrument he used who were moved by the Holy Spirit to pen the scriptures. Now, just a final note, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read passages such as Genesis 12, 1 through 3, or Exodus 9, 13 through 16, you'll see that the phrase, the prefix that starts the statement in these passages, it says, God says, or the Lord says. But the New Testament takes those Old Testament passages where God said something and now says, Scripture said. And so you find that what God says, Scripture says, and the vice versa is true. Scripture said in the Old Testament, and New Testament writers repackaged that and said, God said. So that tells you that there's an equivalence between God's Word and what Scripture actually says. That's great, Joe. So so if the resurrection is the, the primary proof, if you will, that the Bible is the Word of God. Are there other evidences that that we have? Um, I've heard some people say, you know, we it's a re- reliable view of history. It's a reliable view of science. It's a reliable view of, and they fill in the blanks, and of course, prophecy. What What are your thoughts on the extra evidence we have that the Bible is indeed the Word of God? Well, not only did the resurrection confirm it was the Word of God, and again, there's instant credibility from anybody who comes back from the dead and what they have to say about the Scriptures, but we also have fulfilled prophecy. Only God knows the end from the beginning. Only God can predict the future with minute exactness. In fact, the book of Isaiah even mentions Cyrus, the the ruler of Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, 150 years or so before he even came to the throne, and it would be him that would release the Jewish captives back to go build their temple and free them from slavery of the Babylonian captivity. That's just one example, but there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled. Even the latest one in the modern age was the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. You read through the book of Ezekiel, you see that they would be brought back into their own land, and all the prophecies of Revelation and through the prophets of the Old Testament required as a prerequisite that Israel must be established back in their land, or these prophecies could never take place. And so Bible scholars took 
uh, much abuse because Israel didn't have their nation prior to 1948. And they say, well, how can the Bible come to pass if they don't even have a nation? And that we were scoffed at for quite some time, but that all changed on May 14th, 1948, when Israel got their nation back. So prophecy is a powerful uh, pointer when it comes to defining whether the Bible is the Word of God. And then you have the testimony of the people who wrote Scripture, like Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, were people who saw the miracles. They were convinced that Jesus was the Christ, especially after the resurrection. Uh, we can't discount these early eyewitness testimonies that not only tell us that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy, but that is actually the words of God. And so many people even today agree with Peter uh, when he made that great statement in Mark chapter 8 that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, there is 2.5 million people that have confirmed and agreed with that on the planet today. Mm, great. That's that's great. Thanks. Thanks for that, Joe. Luke, I'm going to turn it now over to you. Joe hit on this. He alluded to it, but I'm, I'm hoping you could unpack it for us a little bit. So how did Jesus view the Bible? I mean, Job, you know, was pretty pretty uh, specific that the resurrection and who Christ says he was in the, the resurrection verified that. So what was Jesus's view of the Bible? What, did he use it? Did he dismiss it? Give our listeners some insight. So, of course, at the time of Christ, the Old Testament writings were available and had been for some time, some several hundred years before his coming. And what was known to be the scriptures at the time was what had been written through that process that Joe described as inspiration, had been already pre-screened by the Jewish people, the priests and those who handled the word of God throughout Israel's history. And they had laid that word up in the temple and no, and had made it known because after all, all you really need is one document from the the source, in this case God, to know any other document to also be from Him. And so they had a process whereby they determined that. And as the Jewish culture was embedded with those truths through the practices, particularly given in the Old Testament, children were raised knowing this to be the scriptures, knowing this to be the word of God. What's interesting is that when Christ walks the earth, he comes in the flesh, God in the flesh, he never differs with what it was that had been preserved as the word of God, though he very much differed about the way that the current religious groups were using it. So his difference was a matter of interpretation. Some people try to say that Jesus's disputes with the Pharisees were specific to try to undermine the authority of what had come before, but that's not the case. He confirmed the authority of what was known to be the scriptures, came directly from God, had been verified, but he disagreed with the manner in which the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in most cases were using it and adding to it. So what we observe throughout the ministry of Christ is him using the Old Testament scriptures in many, many scores of quotes, many quotes from the book of Isaiah, and many quotes from the major prophets and from the Pentateuch as he begins to teach his disciples. 
and he begins to unpack those truths. So we show just from an objective point of view that these texts were foundational, but had not been fully revealed and had not been properly interpreted by the existing group. So as he spoke, he revealed the truths that had been there all along and condemned those who, having studied the scriptures, did not view them in the proper way, saying, you have all been taught of God, but you haven't understood, you haven't listened, because if you had, then you would not disagree with what it is that I am saying. And so in having used the scriptures the way that he did, we see a very clear claim to deity in that he's saying, I'm speaking the same thing that my father has spoken. So if we ask, well, what exactly was his opinion of the word of God? We can see that through his behavior, but what did he say about it himself? Obviously, his view of it was that it was exactly what it claimed to be, the word of God. But then we find him saying in John 17, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. He himself is, of course, called the word, but we're not talking just about the written word. Of course, we're talking about the larger idea of the logos, but he has also given himself the title while here on earth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if he claimed to be God, he's saying that God and his word, the truths that they speak are absolutely inextricable from one another. You can't, you can't separate the two. So he continued to say, yes, these are the scriptures. These are things that God has said. And he attached the authority of the things that he said directly to what had already been given as the word of God. So this lays, as Joe had said, the promise of the New Testament lost no authority from that which was given in the Old Testament, but rather amplified what had already been given. So if the Bible is the word of God, as Joe um, explained, and we have we have evidence for that. And Luke, as you said, Jesus had a very high view of the Bible, and, and he equated it with being God's word. The question I have for you, Joe, is, is, is if the Bible is God's word, did God write it or humans? And, and if so, if God wrote it, how do we respond to people who say there are contradictions in the Bible? Because we know God can't contradict. God can't, God can't lie. God can't be wrong. So if it is God's word, as we're saying, is it a human work? And what do we do with, quote unquote, apparent contradictions? That's a good question, Brian. And I think the, the quick answer is that we should understand that the Bible is a theanthropic book. It is a God-man book. And how to unpack that is very important. God is the efficient cause or the originating source, in other words, of the content and of the words themselves, what they mean, so to speak. He delivered the content, he revealed it to the authors, and then the authors are the instrumental cause, just like my example between the carpenter and the hammer, uh, or an individual that picks up a pen to write a paper. Um, that pen would be reflective of more the uh, instrumental causal role that the authors had. So I like to say that God is the author, man is the writer, because he used men to pen his ideas on paper. 
And so if that's the case, we can say that what was penned was superintended by the Holy Spirit, and that guarantees that it's inspired. That means that God breathed it out right from his mind through these instruments uh, called writers uh, to pen the scriptures, and that he is the efficient cause and that the instrumental cause played a part. But again, we give glory to the efficient cause, the originating cause, not the instrument that was used to bring it about. So that is the crux that we have to remember, and that is the essential confusion point, I think, that people get. It is a theanthropic book, but he used man to pen it. And if God cannot err, and the Bible's the word of God, then the Bible cannot err. That's our doctrine of inerrancy. That's the logic behind it. And I think that it's important to realize that simply because man wrote it down doesn't mean that there has to be errors in it. You see, man don't err all the time. Man only errs some of the time. And there's no reason why somebody has to err. So we don't have to just willy-nilly say that the Bible was written by man, therefore it must have errors. And that's simply not the case because nobody has shown any errors in the scriptures. Nobody has shown any contradictions to this date. And yes, there's difficulties and there's passages to be worked out, but there's nothing that has contradicted what God has revealed in the text of scriptures. And that includes the whole 66 books. Now, the fact that we don't have our original autographs is not a problem either because we have good copies. We have manuscripts, so many we don't know what to do with them all. We have over 5,800 New Testament Greek manuscripts at our disposal and tens of thousands of Old Testament manuscripts. And if the manuscripts are plenty, they're close to the dates in which they were originally penned in the original copies, then there's no reason to believe that there has been myth or embellishment that has crept in, and we wouldn't reject what the original scripture says because we can reconstruct what it says because we have so many early copies and manuscripts for the passages of scripture. And just a common sense equation is involved here in making that decision whether you can trust the scripture because you don't have the originals. The originals are lost or destroyed. We don't have them. But we wouldn't reject the rights of the Constitution of the United States or the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence if we happen to lose the original documents. And why is that? Would you give up your rights if these original documents were gone? I don't think anybody would. Why? Because we have good copies of them. So as long as the copies uh, reflect what the original had said in, in analysis and in digging into these copies and reconstructing the original, we'll have no problem in knowing what the original uh, word was actually penned from the, the hand of the instrument. So good. Luke, I'm going to go back to you. Last time you explained how Jesus viewed the Bible. My question for you now is, what does the Bible claim about itself? Does the Bible claim to be an inspired book? Oh, absolutely, Brian. 
And I would say that there's oftentimes an argument that's applied here that say, oh, hold on, you can't answer this question because it's an argument from internal evidence, as if the Bible were only one book. The problem with that approach is that they've lumped all of the various writers, some 40 plus authors across multiple geographical regions and multiple languages as if they represent a single witness. But what we find in scripture is that writers that were not even alive at the time that others wrote nonetheless reference their work much as Jesus's quotations do in showing that these truths have not changed and they still retain the same legacy of having come directly from God. And sometimes these witnesses are happening while others are alive too. So as the New Testament authors quoted the Old Testament authors, such as in a verse that was already used, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is, of course, something written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy about what some people have said, well, this is strictly speaking about the Old Testament. Well, it's not untrue of the Old Testament, but it's not necessarily to the exclusion of other things that may have already been written by the time Paul wrote this, including his own works, which Peter references as having been termed at, on the same level as Scripture. So when when we think about what does the Bible say about itself, we look to what the authors within who were the writers of Scripture have said about each other's writings and that which came long before. Um, we often find them attributing what they have written directly to God, even though it's not necessarily just a quote from the Old Testament. It begins to derive directly from the teachings of Christ. We see a much more near principial succession, not because there's this huge dichotomy between what Christ said in the Old Testament, but rather that there was new revelation of what had been given that was cemented by Christ and disseminated by his apostles. So, you know, the unity of the scriptures is really a powerful testimony to exactly what it is for the very reasons that I mentioned before how many authors are involved, when they lived, the languages that they spoke, etc. And yet they have entireties, entire uh, sections of scripture from these varied places that agree significantly and in completely harmonious trajectory to bring about what we've mentioned before. What is the Bible about? Well, it's about the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. And somehow, a process that we call inspiration. These men spoke with one voice. Appears that we lost Luke there. Um, are you still on, Joe? Yes, I'm still with you. Yeah, uh, his his connection may have went there, and and so uh, we apologize to our listeners for that, but we're just going to continue on that. And, and Luke was um, saying something about inspiration, and so Joe, I just think it would be real important to for our listeners to kind of distinguish the the variances between inspiration and inerrancy, and you know, superintendence. How does this all come to play? 
in our understanding of the Bible. Well, and inspiration and inerrancy are connected. Uh, inspiration precedes inerrancy, because if God speaks and God cannot err, then his word can't err either, and that cannot error part of the equation is the doctrine of inerrancy. So just because something is inerrant, that means without mistakes or without error in it, doesn't make it the inspired word of God. So that's why inerrancy has to follow from the all-perfect God's revelation of himself in the scriptures. But inerrancy and inspiration are like two sides to the same coin. They they go together because God can't, can't err. And so when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about God breathing out the scriptures. We can find that doctrine in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, and so forth. And that's identifying the source of the scripture. Now, the Old Testament claims to inspiration. There are hundreds and hundreds of claims in the Old Testament to inspiration. Whenever it says God said, or the Holy Spirit spoke through me saying, or these prefixes that refer to God speaking, that is a claim to divine inspiration. And that is so important. And when we say that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, we're reserving technically the fullness of that statement to the original autographs, the originals that came from right from the pen. But it doesn't mean that we have given up those two concepts when we look at the copies because they are still present, because we have more than enough words to make out the meaning of what the text is saying. And you don't have to have 100% of the letters or the words to know what somebody is saying. You can just write out a sentence in front of you and remove some of the letters, and you'll still be able to make out 100% of what scholars call the vox, the Latin phrase for meaning, the voice of God coming through. So we can have still an inspired and inerrant scriptures today, even though we don't have the originals, and even though there's little variant readings in the text itself, we can still make out the voice or the vox of God there, and we can say that it's completely inerrant and totally inspired because we haven't lost his voice. Yeah. We haven't lost the meaning. It's still perfectly there because we have more than enough materials to work from to reconstruct the original. I'm glad you touched upon that, Joe, because, you know, there's pundits, there's critics of, of the Bible, um, such as Bart Erdman, who we've, we've mentioned in the broadcast in the past, who say, well, the, it's a mute point. There's no original autographs. There's no original writings. Therefore, to claim inerrancy is is mute. You you don't have anything to compare it to. But I think what you just answered there does give um, a good answer to those who would criticize the fact that we don't have the originals. And then, you know, I've heard others say, well, why didn't God, if the Bible's so important, don't you think he would have preserved um you know, his, these original autographs to make sure that we have the correct words. What, what, how would you respond to that, Joe? Well, I think it was God's, and I can't presume to know what God's mind is for allowing those to disappear from history. I, I would say that if we had the originals, 
that it wouldn't be a good security feature because whoever possessed the originals could either change the originals, which means that everything else could be considered incorrect. All the copies that came from that original stack, if it didn't match what somebody artificially changed in the originals, if they had it in their possession. So in God's providence and his sovereignty, he allowed the originals to disappear and he has all these copies called manuscripts that are handwritten versions of, of the scriptures all over the world in different private collections, in different universities. And so nobody can change all the world's manuscripts and make it say something that was never said in the first place. And so this is a security feature. Secondly, there is an idolatry uh, limitation to not having the originals. If you had the originals, certainly that would have stumbled many to begin worshiping the scriptures themselves instead of worshiping the one who gave the scriptures. You see, we call that bibliolatry. It's a form of idolatry of worship of the Bible. You see, the Bible points us to the one we should worship. We're not to worship the scriptures itself. And that could have been a stumbling block as well for some people. So I think in God's sovereignty, he allowed those to pass away, and we are in much better shape security-wise and spiritually today that they're not present. So we have good copies, and we can rely on those. Yeah, so they're passing. God had a bigger plan or purpose, and and it, it was. I, I love that, the security aspect of it. It's like, it's like backing up information on our computer. You have an important document, you back it up at different places. So if something happens to the original, you have those saved. And God did that through the copying process. So thanks for that. Well, Joe, because we did lose Luke, um, and we apologize for our listeners, uh, I'm just going to end our last question. It's how we normally do it, is recommendations on books. Do you have any book recommendations for our listeners? Uh, yes, I do, uh, Brian. But if we could just back up just one moment, um, there's there's often a question that comes up, and maybe our listeners would appreciate a response to it. And it may run something like this, that the Bible seems to be pointing back to the Old Testament being inspired, but it doesn't point to the New Testament being inspired. You see, the New Testament writers, they would say and object, they would say they're speaking about the 39 books of the Old Testament, but we don't have any proof that the New Testament is the Word of God. But we do, actually, because the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 quotes, ultimately, uh, Luke 10.7 in a quote, along with Deuteronomy, passage and combines them, and he says, the scripture says. 1 Timothy 5.18 is a very powerful passage that Paul even recognized. Luke 10.7, Luke's gospel was inspired scripture. And then Peter in his epistle in 2 Peter 3.16, he refers to Paul's epistles being hard to understand and that many people twist them to their own destruction and demise. And he says, as they do the rest of Scripture in that passage. So he considered Paul's epistles as Scripture as well. So this, this idea of inspiration and inerrancy is not reserved only for the 39 books of the Old Testament. It's referring to the New Testament revelation as well. 
And since most of the books of the Bible of the New Testament were already written, um, except a handful of books, um, by the time um, you know Peter and Paul were making their claims and so forth, that this tells us powerfully what they thought about the new revelation, the New Testament. So regarding... Sorry about that, Joe. It, it it also goes back to something you said earlier about you know, the claims of Christ, his resurrection, and those evidences apply both to the Old Testament fulfilled prophecy as well as the New Testament. There's plenty of prophetic announcements. Christ himself said that the temple would be destroyed, that he would rise from the dead. So the same evidences apply both to the New and Old Testament as well. Yes, exactly. There's plenty of prophecy in the the New Testament to to give a um, beyond reasonable doubt for somebody to make a commitment to the inerrancy and the inspiration of the Word of God. Thanks for that, Joe. Well, again, we apologize that we lost Luke, but that's sometimes how it goes with modern technology. We're actually in three different cities. Dr. Holden is in California. Luke resides in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I'm here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So every now and then we have those little technical glitches. So we apologize. But but back to my the final question, Joe. Any recommendations on books? I think a great book would be A General Introduction to the Bible by uh, Norman Geisler and William Nix. And their second work is called From God to Us, uh, from Geisler and Nix as well. Uh, those two books are uh, amazing to understand how the Bible came together, the concept of inerrancy and inspiration. In fact, there's a third book I'll recommend uh, by um, Bill Roach, William Roach, and Norman Geisler. It's called Defending Inerrancy. And what a great book. It looks at all the modern viewpoints and the different approaches to the scripture, what certain people mean by inerrancy and inspiration, and they measure it up against the scripture and give really powerful responses and explanations and illustrations. I think people would love that book, Defending Inerrancy by Bill Roach, William Roach, and Norman Geisler. All three are marvelous, and thank you for that, Joe, and thank you for being on with us today. It's it's It was great and such an important topic. Oh, good to be with you, Brian and Luke. Well, sad and we, Luke. we lost him. <laughs> we lost him there towards the end, but that's how it goes. And you know, Joe, I'm I'm excited because you know we're we're wrapping up this first semester. We have one more broadcast next week before we take an Easter break. But this really has been a fruitful endeavor where people are being equipped. As we pointed out, we're now being listened to in ten countries around the world. And the base just keeps growing. So it's a blessing that we're able to do this. And though, again, we're we're going to finalize our, our time together next week, we're going to pick it up again after Easter and delve into a whole new topic. So we want our listeners to know um, that we will be back. But next week, I'm really excited about because we're downloading our time together. We're looking at some practical applications of how to provide solid answers and seeking God's wisdom in the process. But Joe, I'm going to uh, put this in your 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 brain and, and to ponder this throughout the next week is really to hit upon some other vital questions Christians need to be aware of in our contemporary world. I'm thinking things such as AI 
and the changing definition of marriage and all of these current understandings and our understanding of personhood. And though we're not going to take the whole broadcast to unpack these in detail, I think giving our listeners some of these key areas that we need to provide solid answers for will be very important. So, Joe, beware. Yes, I'm ready for it. (laughs) I love it. it. It's going to be great. So until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.